Well, this evening we are going to study the doctrine of total depravity. And like I mentioned last week, we have to talk about the bad news first. And so this really is bad news part two. Bad news part two. If we are to properly understand our need for salvation, if we are to understand the glories and beauties of God's mercy in salvation, we must have a, a, a sufficient understanding of our need. And so that's why we're looking at these two doctrines at the very beginning. Last week, we looked at the doctrine of original sin, and tonight we're going to look at the doctrine of total depravity. As I said, the doctrine of salvation is directly related to our understanding of sin. And so whatever you believe about the mercy of God is directly related to your understanding of the nature of the need. So if you believe that the need is very small or minimal, then that will affect your understanding of the grace of God, your understanding of the mercy of God. And as I mentioned last week, even though the the, the concept of sin is very intimate to us all. Everyone here knows what sin is. At the same time, we must be very careful to establish an understanding of sin according to Scripture. All of us have experiences with sin. All of us have experienced sin. All of us know what guilt is. But it's important that we conform our understanding to what the Bible actually says it is. Because one of the realities, one of the, the, the characteristics of sinners is that we redefine sin. We're in this constant effort to redefine sin, to make it something less ugly than what it is, something more normal than what it should be. And so when it comes to these doctrines, it is very important to make sure that our understanding conforms to what God says sin is, that our understanding conforms to what God says guilt is. And that's what we're doing in these two lessons. Last week, as you remember, we talked about the doctrine of original sin, the, the sin that originated our sinfulness, our guilt. And when we talk about the study of original sin, we, we mentioned last week that it includes two aspects. It includes a study of that first sin, that historic sin, the first sin of humanity there in the Garden of Eden that is described for us in Genesis chapter 3. So the study of the doctrine of original sin has to look at the nature of that sin, that first sin in humanity. But the study of original sin also focuses on and studies the effect that Adam's sin has on all Adam's descendants. That is part of the study of the doctrine of original sin. And so you remember this graphic that we have here on the screen. The key question when we talk about original sin is, what is the relationship between that historic sin that Adam committed in the garden and my own sin today, my own experience with sin today? That's a fundamental question. We looked at the two views that were uh, closer to Scripture. In fact, one of these is most 
close to Scripture, most consistent with Scripture. But the one view that was almost there was a view that was proposed by Augustine, where Augustine said, I was there in Adam's loins in the garden. I sinned with Adam, and sin and guilt is transmitted by procreation. Now, Adam, or Augustine is right in that sense, because the Bible does teach that. Uh, Psalm 51, verse 5, David confesses that he was conceived in sin. He was, he was conceived in a state of guiltiness. He acknowledges that. David does. So that part is true. But we, we mentioned last week that Augustine didn't quite go far enough in light of the important text of Romans 5, verses, 21, or verses 12 to 21, where Paul says that we bear the consequences of Adam's sin because Adam was our representative. Adam acted on our behalf. And therefore, we incur guilt and, and, and sinfulness and its condemnation and death because of what Adam did. Because Adam sinned, as Paul says in Romans he just gets right to the, to the end of the matter. Because Adam sinned, all die. And that in, is important to embrace as well. We must understand our relationship to Adam's sin simply on the, the basis of what Scripture says. Adam sinned, and because I'm a descendant of Adam, I bear responsibility because he was a, he was a legal representative. And so we talked about that last week. Now this week... We're going to look at sin in a different sense, in a much more personal sense. And as we begin, I want to look again at some key terms and definitions. Some key terms and definitions. We're going to look at three of them this evening. One of them is a review, the, the term sin. We're going to redefine that just to make sure it's clear in our understanding of what sin really is at, at its heart. We're going to look at the term homardiology, define that. We're going to then spend our time defining total depravity. So what is sin? How did we define sin last week? Here's a good definition taken from the book Biblical Doctrine by MacArthur and Mayhew. They write this, Sin is any lack of conformity to God's will in attitude, thought, or action, whether committed actively or passively. The center of all sin is autonomy, which is the replacing of God with self. If you remember what, what I mentioned last week, sin at, 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 in its essence is when I say, my will be done, not thy will be done. That's the essence of sin. And we even see that in 1 John chapter 3, verse 4, where the Apostle John writes this, everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness. And then he gives this very simple definition. Sin is lawlessness. Sin is a rebellion against the law of God. Sin is that act when we say, we know better. We don't need that. We will not conform. I'll do it my way. I know what's better. I am a law unto myself. That is the essence of sin. Let's look now at the second term, amartiology. And no, it's not the study of ham sandwiches, all right? Looks like it. It's a little bit more technical than that. 
The common Greek word for sin is the word hamartia. Hamartia. And so hamartiology, you have the hamartia Greek root and the logos root, and they're added together, and it essentially comes together to, to refer to the study of sin. So if you, if you see or hear that word, hamartiology, hamartiology, it's simply a reference to the study of the Bible's teaching on sin, study of sin, hamartiology. But the, the term that we're going to focus on most this evening is the term total depravity, and we must begin with the definition and then work our way from that definition to some, some biblical evidences of this definition as well as its implications. Total depravity. What is total depravity? One writer writes this in reference to what this term, this phraseology is all about. He says this, as extensive as original sin is in humanity as a whole, so it is also in the individual person. Sin holds sway over the whole person, over mind and will, heart and conscience, soul and body, over all of one's capacities and powers. A person's heart is evil from his or her youth and a source of all sorts of evils. One cannot renew oneself. One cannot understand the things of God or submit to the law of God and one is dead through trespasses and sins. Essentially, this writer has defined total depravity. It's that the the relationship of sin in the individual person as it works itself out in practice. Total depravity is what defines our experience. Original sin defined our state, our our status, but total depravity is that term that that explains why we experience sin the way that we do and all of its consequences. MacArthur and Mayhew define total depravity this way. Total depravity emphasizes the devastating impact of sin on the person. And covers three related components. And this is what our study will follow this evening. Number one, the pollution and corruption of all aspects of a person. Number two, the complete inability of a person to please God. And number three, universality in that all are conceived and born as sinners. So total depravity, emphasizing the emphasizes the devastating impact of sin on the person. And we're going to look at those three categories as we go through our study this evening. But let me give you another definition here by another theologian by the name of W.G.T. Shedd. He says this, Total depravity means the entire absence of holiness, not the highest intensity of sin. A totally depraved man is not as bad as he can be, but he has not holiness. That is, no supreme love of God. He worships and loves the creature rather than the creator. Taking that from Romans 1 verse 25. 
Now, we're going to go through these definitions and we're going to follow those three components or concepts that Mayhew and MacArthur give, but these are just introductory definitions that help us to, to, to point to the, to the basic understanding that when we talk about total depravity, we're talking about the impact of sin on the whole person and every aspect of human existence. So, in summary, as we move on from this section of, of key terms and their definitions, you could look at it this way when we talk about these two major aspects of the study of sin. First, we looked at original sin. Original sin last week. And original sin emphasizes our guilty position, our status. We're guilty by our relationship to Adam. We're sinners by nature, by connection to our head, Adam. And anyone who is in Adam, anyone who comes after Adam, anyone who is represented by Adam is guilty. That's the doctrine of original sin. The doctrine of total depravity emphasizes our guilty practice. This study of sin focuses on the on the outworking, on the actuality, on the experiences of sin and in the common everyday human life existence. The doctrine of total depravity tells us that we are sinners by behavior. Sinners by practice. That's who we are. Now when it comes to the biblical support for this understanding of total depravity, that it affects all of who we are, all of our person. Let me give you some biblical texts that are really crucial in articulating the doctrine of original or the doctrine of total depravity. And it's very important to note this that when it comes to the Bible, the doctrine of total depravity is the easiest of all doctrines to prove. It's the easiest of all doctrines to substantiate from the testimony of Scripture. Because every single book of the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, deals with the topic of our sinfulness, of our sinful behavior. Every single book and every single section of Scripture, whether it's the law, the prophets, and the writings of the Old Testament, or the Gospels and the book of Acts, the epistles, or the book of Revelation, every single book of Scripture testifies, it declares unambiguously that we are sinners by practice. So it is not hard to to find and to trace this doctrine in Scripture. Scripture is very clear. Let me give you a few texts, though, that are really critical when it comes to understanding the doctrine of total depravity. Genesis 6, verse 5, and then again in verses 11 and 12. Genesis 6 verse 5 says this, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That is a devastating statement on the nature of man at that early stage in human history. And then it goes on, the the text goes on to say in verses 11 to 12, Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. God looked upon the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh, speaking of humanity, all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. Later on, in one of the great chapters of the Bible, Solomon's dedication of 
the temple, Solomon says this in 1 Kings 8 verse 46, there is no man who does not sin. There is no man who does not sin. Jeremiah 17 verse 9, the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately wicked. Who can understand it? Again, just an absolute description. No exceptions, no qualifications. Absolute in its definition. The heart is more deceitful than all else and desperately sick. And of course, the most poignant statement on human depravity is found in Romans chapter 3, in verses 9 to 18, where the Apostle Paul provides a summary And in this summary, he doesn't even just use his own words, but he takes all these different verses from the Old Testament, from the book of Psalms and Isaiah in particular, and he weaves them into this devastating description about the state of mankind. And before you think that he's just describing pagans, you have to begin with his own words, the beginning of verse 9, when he says, what then are we Jews better than they Gentiles, pagans? Not at all. You see, Paul is a Jew who, who was part of this, this, this ethnic group who had received all these benefits from God. Paul recognizes there's, there's no distinction. We're all totally depraved at our basic unregenerate state. So he says, are, are, are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, and then he quotes from Psalm 14 and Psalm 53, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. He quotes from Psalm 5 verse 9 as he continues, their throat is an open grave and their tongues they keep deceiving. Psalm 104 verse 3 is then quoted as he says, the poison of asps is under their lips. He then quotes Psalm 10 verse 7, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. He then quotes Isaiah 59 verses 7 and 8 and says, Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths and the path of peace they have not known. And then he quotes Psalm 36 verse 1. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And he says, Jew and Gentile alike are under this description. There is no distinction. And then in a few verses in that Very well-known text, he says, Romans 3, verse 23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So in light of these texts and others, how can we define total depravity a little more clearly? Let's do that now. And let's look at those three components that MacArthur and Mayhew bring out in their definition of original sin. And the first component was this, that Mankind, that the individual human being is polluted and corrupted in all aspects of his person. So we can label this component comprehensive corruption. When we talk about total depravity, we're talking about comprehensive corruption. 
a pollution, a corruption that extends to every aspect of your being. Let's look at this in a few, from a few perspectives. Let's look first at man's essence, his, his composition. We see, first of all, if we would look at the, the testimony of Scripture, that man's material existence, his material existence, his body is corrupted by sin. Your body, my body, evidences the corruption of sin through its involvement in sinful acts. Paul talks about lips and tongue and mouth and feet and hands. All of these things actively engaged in sinful activities. And our bodies also experience the consequences of those things. We're dying. So our our bodies are corrupted. But it's not just man's material existence that is polluted by sin. It's his immaterial existence as well. Man's soul evidences the corruption of sin. In that every component of man's immaterial existence is described by Scripture as being polluted. There's no part of man's immaterial existence, no part of his soul that is ever described by Scripture as being innocent or pure. The unregenerate man in his immaterial aspect, in all those components, he is polluted in every, in every way. So we could read of his mind, his thoughts, his intellect. The unregenerate man's intellect, thoughts, mind, his logic, his reason is corrupt. Remember that the next time you try and engage in some kind of logical conversation about the gospel with an unbeliever. His logic doesn't work. We sometimes forget that. We sometimes assume that his logic works. It doesn't. He actively suppresses the truth. His mind is darkened, Scripture says. The conscience. Titus 1 verse 15 talks about how the conscience is defiled. The conscience of an unregenerate man does not work as it should. You can never appeal to to a conscience in an absolute sense. Yes, it it sometimes flickers on and off, but the conscience is defiled. It's never a, a source of authority for the unregenerate man. His heart, the intentions of his heart, his, his control center, his, 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 his soul at its most basic element, his heart in the Hebrew sense, is corrupted. His affections, his loves are corrupted. John 3 verse 19. His will is corrupted. There's no neutrality in his decision-making. His volition is polluted by sin. John 8, verse 34. And his desires. Look at Romans 1, 24 to 27. The unregenerate man's desires. What he hungers for. His bodily passions. They're never neutral. In fact, in the whole debate over the same-sex attraction stuff, People are making grave mistakes by thinking attractions are neutral. They are not. They have been impacted by sin. They are not morally neutral. John Calvin said it this way, We are so entirely controlled by the power of sin that the whole mind, the whole heart, and all our actions are under its influence. He goes on elsewhere to say man's nature so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. That's who man is. And 
I don't need to substantiate this. We know this. We know this. But let me read a a, a little section out of Augustine's Confessions that really helps hit home the nature of our depravity because all of us can identify with what Augustine describes here as far as his own depravity as he reflects on his youth. It's a section out of his book, Confessions, book 2, chapter 4. Follow along in your thinking as I read this section because it really is a profound blend of, of, of his own personal history with some very profound truth. He says this, Theft is punished by the law, O Lord, and by the law written in men's hearts, which not even engraved wickedness can erase. For what thief will tolerate another thief stealing from him? Even a rich thief will not tolerate a poor thief who is driven to theft by want. Yet I had a desire to commit robbery and did so, compelled to it neither by hunger nor poverty, but through a contempt for well-doing and a strong impulse to iniquity. For I pilfered something which I already had in sufficient measure and of much better quality. I did not desire to enjoy what I stole, but only the theft and the sin itself. There was a pear tree close to our own vineyard, heavily laden with fruit, which was not tempting either for its color or for its flavor. Late one night, having prolonged our games in the streets until then, as our bad habit was, a group of young scoundrels, and I among them, went to shake and rob this tree. We carried off a huge load of pears, not to eat ourselves, but to dump out to the hogs, after barely tasting some of them ourselves. Doing this pleased us all the more because it was forbidden. Such was my heart, O God, such was my heart, which thou didst pity even in that bottomless pit, Behold, now let my heart confess to thee that I was seeking there, that that it was seeking there when I was being gratuitously wanton, having no inducement to evil, but the evil itself. I was foul and I loved it. I loved my own undoing. I loved my error, not that for which I erred, but for the error itself. A depraved soul following away from security in thee to destruction in itself, seeking nothing from the shameful deed but shame itself. And when you get this handout or you get these slides in the email, turn to this section in the slides and reread it. It's really a profound description of his own testimony. But when you read through it, you you can all say, you know what, I identify with Augustine. Countless times, I have sinned not out of any need whatsoever. I've had all I needed, and I'll still sin. Why? Because I love to. I love to sin. And that's total depravity. That is what we're talking about when when we say that sin has polluted every aspect of us, 
our wills, our affections, our intellect, our emotions, every aspect. And therefore, we can identify very clearly with Augustine. But sin has not only affected our composition, sin affects our relationships. First and foremost, when we talk about being totally depraved, we're talking about your inclination to hate God. Romans 8 verse 7 says that the mind of the flesh is hostile toward God. It's hostile. Ephesians 2 verses 1 to 3 says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, and we were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. And later on in Ephesians 4 verse 18, this also explains our broken relationship with God when we read this of our past lives, that we were darkened in understanding, excluded from the life of God. That is one of the most sad statements that we read in all of Scripture. Of the lost man, he is excluded from the life of God. There is enmity. And of course, man is not only inclined in his depravity to hate God, man is inclined to hate his neighbor. We see that as part of the judgment on Adam and Eve that immediately God says there's going to be strife in the marriage relationship. In the most beautiful of all relationships, there is now strife. We see it in Cain and Abel, the first murder that happened a short time in history after the fall itself. And when we look at different sin lists in the New Testament, there's an important thing to note. Notice how many of these sin lists focus on sins of strife. So in Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 to 21, for example, we read the following about the deeds of the flesh. They are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery. And then look at this enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. The majority of these deeds of the flesh have to do with enmity of man against man. That's total depravity. But it not only affects man's composition and man's relationship, it affects man's existence in the sense of death. Man is dead spiritually. He's a dead man walking spiritually. He is unresponsive to spiritual truth. He is void of a true desire for God. And so Ephesians 2 verses 1 to 5 talks about this, saying we were dead in trespasses and sins. We were dead in our transgressions, verse 5. We are dead spiritually in our unregenerate state. Lost man is dead. But lost man is also dying physically. We, we see this in Genesis 3 verse 19 as, as God says to Adam, by the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground because from it you are taken for you are dust and to dust you shall return. And just a few short chapters later, in chapter 5, then we read Adam did die. And we see the first, we see the first family tree there. And we see this repeated statement over and over again. And he died and he died and he died and he died. Later on, the psalmist reflects in Psalm 90, verse 10. As for the days of our life, they contain 70 years, or if due to strength, 80. Yet their pride is but labor and sorrow, for soon it is gone and we fly away. We are dying physically. The lost man will die eternally. He will die 
eternally. Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 to 15. I won't read that text, but that text pictures the, the great throne, the great white throne, and every individual lost and apart from Christ, every individual still in Adam, stands before the great white throne in this time in, in the future and will be judged according to the deeds that he or she has done. And as they are judged according to their sins, it says they then will experience the second death in the lake of fire, which is eternal in nature. So that's the first component. It affects every man's entire aspect of, of being. Let's look at the second of these, complete inability. Complete inability. And this aspect of total depravity has to do with the complete inability of a person to please God. Not only has sin polluted and corrupted every aspect of your being, but it renders you incapable, in, unable to please God. Now, there's an important clarification that must be made here. When we talk about total depravity, it doesn't mean that you do the, the worst possible things. Not at all. That's not what total depravity teaches. Let me read from one theologian here as he explains this. He says this, and this is Herman Bavink. He says, the teaching of Scripture, after all, is not that every human lives at all times in all possible actual sins and is, in fact, guilty of violating all of God's commandments. Instead, it refers only to the deepest inclination, the innermost disposition, the fundamental directedness of human nature and confesses that it is not turned toward God but away from Him. What does that mean? It does mean that unregenerate man can establish a relative sense of righteousness. We read of the Jews doing that in Romans chapter 10. The Jews establish righteousness. It's a righteousness of their own. Notice again, it is righteousness, but it is not directed towards God. It is their own righteousness. It means that evil fathers can give good gifts to their children. Jesus says that in Matthew 7 verse 11. Even evil fathers give good gifts. Atheists can be very civil and polite. Members of false religions can be great neighbors. Unbelievers can have good marriages and, and even raise respectable children. And, and it is possible, it is possible, theoretically speaking, that a secular politician can even have integrity. Can, he can even obey the law. It's hard to believe. But it's theoretical. You don't know. I know. That's a, that was a hard one. I, I, I wondered whether to put that one in or not. But it's possible. But it's all relative. You see, the outward display of virtue, which is common enough, does not, un, does not purify the underpinning sinful motive. You see, there's much more than an outward expression of charity, an outward obedience to the law. There's a motive for that. And what total depravity says is that you can have all the great works. You can go to church. You can tithe. You can fast. You can give your money away to the poor. What's your motive? Total depravity says, you look good on the outside, but inside, dead men's bones. You don't do this for God's glory. You are doing it for your own. Augustine said that the virtues, these great virtues of the unregenerate, he called them splendid vices. Color-coded vices, whitewashed sins. 
We also note this, that human depravity is limited. And the reason why you don't see human depravity as, as you think you would, based on all these definitions, is the fact that God has planned different things in to mitigate against depravity. Tower of Babel, Genesis chapter 11, to mitigate against the sinfulness of man, God introduced different languages so that man couldn't get together and be as sinful as he really could be. God has instituted authority structures, civil government, in order to mitigate against the worst kinds of human depravity. And God even himself providentially restrains sin. So when we talk about total depravity, it's not that, that everything's going to be as bad as it could be. No, that's not what we're saying. But we are saying this, number one, man cannot accept or understand the things of God. A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14. For they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them. So when we talk about the inability of man, first of all, it's that he cannot truly appreciate, recognize, love, and accept the things that God has spoken in his word. The unbelieving man cannot do that. Second, the unbelieving man cannot do the kind of works that are pleasing to God. Jesus said in John 15, verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. You can do nothing unless you are incorporated into the vine. In Romans, 10, or Romans 3, verses 10 to 12, we've read this already. Paul takes these Old Testament quotes and says over and over again, none righteous, not one, none understands, there's none who does good. And later on in Romans chapter 8, verses 6 to 8, Paul says that those who are in the flesh cannot please God. One writer writes this, good, true good, good in the eyes of a holy God is only what is done out of faith according to God's law and God's glory. Therefore, weighed in the scales of God's sanctuary, all the works of unregenerate unregenerate men are always found to be wanting. The third thing that man cannot do is that he cannot make himself right before God. Jeremiah 13 verse 23 says, Can the Ethiopian change his skin? Can the leopard change his spots? Then you also can do good who are accustomed to doing evil. The answer is no, you can't. In John 3, verse 4, Jesus is talking about the new birth, regeneration, and Nicodemus asks the right question. How can a man be born when he is old? He can't do it. He can't enter into his mother's womb a second time to be born. Now, Nicodemus missed the point, but he asks the right question. How can man do this? And the answer is you can't. Not on your own. You can't make yourself right before God. That leads us to the third component of total depravity. It's universality. It's universality. And according to the definition of Mayhew and MacArthur, it's this. Total depravity means universality in that all are conceived and born as sinners. And again, Romans 3 verses 10 to 12 emphasizes this. In Romans 3 verse 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's not one person in this room who has not been in this status, who has not experienced total depravity, 
who's never been a part of it, there's no one in this room. And there's no one on the face of this planet. There's only one man in the course of history who has never not been totally depraved, and that is the man, Jesus Christ. As Isaiah says, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have turned his own way. And and the, the amazing thing about the Bible is that even the greatest heroes of the faith, men like Abraham and Moses and David, Solomon and Isaiah, they're men who sinned. It's universal without exception. And this doctrine is important to understand because it brings us to this final point for tonight, the need for a remedy. If this is who we are, what hope is there? And, and, and if it's based on us, there isn't any hope. You see, radical depravity, the kind of depravity that you and I have experienced, radical depravity calls for a radical solution and nothing else will do. Go back to the song that we sang earlier this evening. I want to read just the, the, the couple stanzas of the first half of it. We read this. We read, no list of sins that I have done, no list of virtues I pursue, no list of those I am not like can earn myself a place with you. No humble dress, no fervent prayer, no lifted hands, no tearful song, no recitation of the truth can justify a single wrong. No separation from the world, no work I do, no gift I give can cleanse my conscience, cleanse my hands. I cannot cause my soul to live. That is the effect of total depravity. It's radical. And it means that in and of itself, we are hopeless. There's no hope. No one in this room, just looking at those words, just looking at the doctrine of total depravity could say, I've got a chance. I can maybe make it through. Impossible. Zilch. Zero. But in our worship, we do sing the second half of these stanzas. And this is the radical remedy. Oh God, be merciful to me. I am a sinner through and through. My only hope of righteousness is not in me, but only you. My righteousness is Jesus' life. My debt was paid by Jesus' death. My weary, weary load was borne by him, and he alone can give me rest. But Jesus died and rose again. The power of death is overthrown. My God is merciful to me and merciful in Christ alone. Let me close with the reading of this writer, Bavink, again. He says this, It is truly not Scripture alone that judges humans harshly. It is human beings who have pronounced the harshest and most severe judgments on themselves. And it is always better to fall into the hands of the Lord than into those people, for his mercy is great. For when God condemns us, he at the same time offers his forgiving love in Christ. But when people condemn people, 
they frequently cast them out and make them the object of scorn. When God condemns us, he has this judgment brought to us by people, prophets and apostles and ministers who do not elevate themselves to a high level above us, but include themselves with us in this common confession of guilty. When God condemns, he speaks of sin and guilt that though great and heavy can be removed because they do not belong to the essence of humanity. It's a wonderful message. And this is the reality that Jesus did not come to those who think they did not need and do not need a physician. Jesus came specifically to those who knew they were sick. He came specifically to those who knew they were dying, who had no hope. And that's who we are or must be. I don't know where you are tonight. Maybe you're still that lost man, still experiencing all the consequences of living a life of Augustine in the pear garden, sinning just for the fun of it, or sinning because you had no other option. But the reality of the gospel is that we must first recognize that we are sick, we are dead, we can't do it ourselves, we can't change our status. But Christ has come, he has come, he has come for the sick, the dying. Robert Murray McShane put it this way, I do not come to Christ although I am a sinner. I come to Christ because I am a sinner. And he has the radical solution. Praise the Lord for that. And in the weeks ahead, we'll be studying that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are, on the one hand, rendered speechless as we see the testimony of Scripture. It's so clear. It is pronounced judgment upon us. and. We know its judgment is true. We are sinners through and through. And in our lost state, there's nothing that we can do. We love sin. We're in bondage to it. The more we do it, the more we love it. And yet you've sent a radical, radical solution that is more powerful than sin itself. And that is your son, Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. And so we thank you that today, those of us who are in Christ, and who are no longer in Adam, we're in Christ. We're no longer helpless. We're no longer hopeless. We no longer have to just sing the first half of those stanzas. Instead, we sing the second half. We we sing that Jesus died and rose again, and the power of death is overthrown. And my God is merciful to me because he's merciful to me in Christ alone. And we give you the praise and glories for this radical remedy. We love you, our Father. Amen.